welcome to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. This is a conversation for educators and leaders in the health professions. I'm your host, Victoria Brazel. So welcome to our next Harvard Macy Institute podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about cost and value in health professional education. And in order to do that, I'm joined by Dr. Kieran Walsh, who's made this a little bit of an interest of his. Uh, Dr. Walsh is a physician. He trained in Ireland. He's currently the clinical director at BMJ, which means he's the clinical lead of the medical education and clinical decision support products at BMJ, including BMJ Best Practice, which may be well known to many people uh, as a wonderful cl- clinical decision support uh, and learning resource. How are you, Kieran? Great. Thanks, uh, Victoria. And uh, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to, to join you and to talk about this subject of cost and value in healthcare professional education. I think it's really important. It has implications for lots of different professions, lots of different countries. And for BMJ also, we want to provide resources that give value to healthcare professionals and ultimately for patients. So it's great that you're covering it. It's easy to ignore this topic, I think, Kieran. How did you start to get interested and, dare I say, almost crusading on it? Um, So about... 10 years ago in 2010, when the recession started, I thought, gosh, this is going to have an effect on healthcare, and it's going to have an effect on healthcare professional education also. And I thought, somebody must have looked at this. And so I started to do research on PubMed and Google Scholar, and I found remarkably little on a subject that I thought was so important. And then I started to write about it and do um, small bits of research on it and to review the area and then started to partner with other people uh, in the UK and internationally as as well. And it it grew from there, I think. Yeah, fantastic. And What we might do is to sort of step into that a little more because I do think some of our reticence is that we don't even know what we're talking about. So maybe we could start with a little bit of terminology and concepts and then maybe step into a little bit more of a granular application. Uh, But I guess the first thing is what do we even mean when we say costs in health professional education? Because there's no doubt some direct ones we can see. If you're running BMJ best practice, you've got some hosting costs and you've got to pay people to put the content together. But it seems to me from reading some of your writing, Kieran, that this concept of cost needs to be taken much more broadly. Could you speak to that for a minute? Yeah, sure. So um, I remember being at a talk uh, a few years ago and the person talking about cost and healthcare professional education started off his talk by asking, what is cost? And he paused for a dramatic effect, which I won't do on a podcast because it doesn't work so so well. Um, but it is an important question. People ask me, is cost money? What about human cost? What about different currencies then? And what about inflation? Or a medical teacher in China is paid differently to how they're paid in the UK And so how does it all work? And so the short answer is that cost is opportunity cost. And what's opportunity cost? Well, opportunity cost is the loss of potential gain from other alternatives 
when one particular alternative is chosen over the others. So let's look at a tangible example. You might be thinking about improving your simulation resources and the investment required to do that might be £100,000 or, or dollars, dollars. And you could spend those funds on e-learning or better AV equipment or to have more medical teachers, but you decide to forego those things in choosing simulation investments. And that's opportunity cost, and that is cost. Sorry, a long answer, but this is a, a fascinating subject. And as you can see, I'm over-enthusiastic. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, and in fact, on one of the book chapters that you sent me, I read this interesting quote that made me reflect, which sort of goes to the point you've just made, and I'm going to maybe even challenge it a little bit. You wrote that nothing was inherently cost-effective, but it was cost-effective in the context of other approaches available. Uh, but I don't think you're saying that there is no return on investment of doing education innately. Is that right? Uh, n n no, uh, absolutely not. Like I think when I say nothing is cost effective in and of itself, I'm getting into really the, the academic use of the term cost effectiveness and cost effectiveness analysis. I'm saying that in, the, in an academic paper, you shouldn't say something is cost effective without being able to prove that it's cost effective compared to an, an alternative. But, but that's one of the things I think we need to do better in this area, which is to, to be more careful with our use of, term, use of terms. Mm, absolutely. And I also read another paper of yours that looked at some of the theoretical underpinnings of this. And I started to realize that once you start to get into it, in fact, you have to have a pretty good appreciation of economics and just how people think about cost and value on a, on a broader sense. Uh, so maybe if we sort of stick with the medical or health professional education context here, I thought there were a few, I suppose, barriers as to why we're not doing this right now. And one of them just seemed to be deeply inherently cultural, and that is it's not something we need to do, and uh, surely we're too clever to have to do anything as dirty as money. Uh, that's probably fair to say, is it, that there's a cultural issue that we've got here? I think this partly it. I think that one of the big issues is that we don't have we haven't had much expertise in this area there are very few economists who are looking at this and everybody says oh why don't you talk to health economists and health economists might not be the right people it may be more labor economists or workforce economists that we should be uh, speaking to. So, so I, I think it's partly culture, but it's partly a lack of expertise. In terms of culture, I think some people think, oh, you're, you're looking to save money. Um, or if we look too hard at this, um, there might be cutbacks, or you might be looking at low cost, low value forms of medical education, which is absolutely not the purpose of, of this. Like I've been involved in various projects for about 10 years and, and when done properly, I, I've never seen it used to introduce cutbacks or, or, or to save costs. In terms of expertise, I think we are 
improving. We've got a small society for cost and value in healthcare professional education now, which has members from lots of different countries. So there are, and there are a growing number of, of papers. So I think we'll get there in terms of expertise. Mm. I suppose one of the other issues, and perhaps this relates to this though, uh, and the, this idea about fear of cutbacks, is there is a little bit of a disconnect between the uh, people that pay and the people that teach in many organisations. And so many of the people that teach are clinicians who on a tribal level seem to have this distrust of administrators who are the front face of the payers, even if the payers might actually be taxpayers or, or others. Uh, that's probably something we've got to overcome as well, isn't it? Because we often do speak different languages and, and are looking for different outcomes in our day-to-day -day work. Yeah, that that's that's right. There can be a disconnect um, between uh, those who pay and those who, who who teach. And one thing that's important about cost is you need to think about different perspectives and and who the payer is. And the payer might be the learner, or the institution, or the government. Or a sponsor and how you look at this whole field will depend very much on these different perspectives. Yeah absolutely uh, all right well we might dive into a couple of applied examples um, so we can start to tease out what would cost look like and what does value and effectiveness look like because clearly that's the other whole side of this albeit probably a better researched one. Uh, do we want to start with e-learning maybe given that that is your uh, core activity at um, BMJ Learning, but also maybe because that has been a uh, cause de jour over the last year as well, hasn't it? Uh, maybe we've saved a lot of money by doing all this online learning. Uh, how do you think about it, I suppose, in terms of your role at BMJ? Because that is probably a very um, easy way to think about its application. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I think that um, be it e-learning or simulation or anything else, first of all, we've got to think about what the costs are as 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 a baseline. And uh, and and people commonly ask me, how do you do this? Um, um, and how do you measure costs? And the simple answer is what we use is something called the ingredients approach. What's that? Well, basically, you find out all the components of your medical education intervention, in this case, e-learning. You find out the, the volume of them, how many e-learning resources or, or, or whatever, and you assign a cost to them, even if they're, they're free. And then you add up all the costs and, and that becomes your your cost and so the cost of e-learning might be the cost of hardware and software uh, the costs of teachers time in producing the content learners time in accessing the content etc 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 in in any educational intervention most of the cost is on people even if it's a technological intervention, still most of the cost, probably about 70%, is taken up by people, i.e. teachers and learners. And so if you get that 
even slightly wrong, um, it can cause major problems with your analysis further down the for, further further down the line. Um, and I, I mentioned that you should assign a cost to something, even if it's free. That's important too. So the short answer is the ingredients approach, and it's it's if you. Google it, the ingredients approach in healthcare professional education or in education more broadly. Once you get there, then you've got your, your baseline cost. And then you've got to think about what outcomes you're trying to achieve from e-learning. And ultimately, you should be thinking about learning outcomes rather than doing e-learning for the, for, for, for the sake of it or, or, or whatever. And then you've got to somehow put the two together what's the cost and what's the outcome and how do I generate better outcomes for a given in investment? One feature of that is scalability. Um, uh, so obviously the more users of an e-learning resource, the lower the cost per individual learner. Now, everybody says that and, and of course it's, it's true, um, but the question is, how do you how do you do that? How do you get um, thousands and thousands of people to access your uh, your e-learning resource or your clinical decision support resource? And then, without making this answer even too longer than it is already, it's about kind of integrating into curricula, getting it accredited for CME, CPD, and and aligned with quality improvement programs and based on 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 learner needs um and no, so scalability is one i would say i think it's also worth thinking about the level of functionality and sophistication an online resource needs to needs needs to have achievement of the learning outcomes are the are the ultimate aim not to produce something that's unnecessarily um, unnecessarily sophisticated I think the online learning example is a pretty good one because you've got some nice design decisions that are costable even just something simple like the difference between audio and video or us doing this podcast uh, obviously we're both very physically attractive and people might add something if we added the video but given that we're recording a conversation it's largely about content it's going to be more easily consumed by people if it's audio only and so I guess that's a really tangible example of what you're talking about you can film fancy talks but maybe if it's content you just want a simple infographic or or you might want a short bit of audio to add to it. And so um, I think it, it's clear. Can I ask you, though, you know, that's in the very organised sense of e-learning, but I've certainly been part of the more organic uh, Web 2 or 3.0 free open access medical education. Uh, we don't even, you don't even know how to count the users in that sort of situation. How would a cost and value analysis look at that kind of online learning yeah, yeah, sure. That's a that's a good question. I, I don't have a direct answer to that question, but I do think it's thinking about your your audience, and often these are doctors or nurses or allied healthcare professionals in training, who want content on a mobile, who want to be able to access content within seconds, who say that they'll watch a video provided it's about 30 or 40 seconds long. And even then, they'll watch it at double speed. So 
So it's a whole new way of looking at the world where sitting in lectures for a day doesn't kind of sit well with that. Uh, can we sort of switch uh, context now? Because one of the other topics that I know you've written about and also I've thought a little bit about, which is cost and value in simulation. And once again, I feel like we've got a lot of these obvious design choices about technology and people and how over-specified or, or appropriately specified those design choices are. And that's probably not new to the simulation community, but really quantifying either the outcomes or the costs probably is uh, still unfamiliar. Yeah, sure. Like, I think simulation is is a good one to look at. Like e-learning, I would say that simulation should only be as high fidelity as it, as it needs to be. You see simulation units, which are probably not aligned to the practice that's going on at the hospital so uh so, so i have seen cardiothoracic surgery simulation labs in different parts of the world attached to hospitals where they don't do um cardiothoracic surgery it's it's um it, it's an obvious thing to say but the the simulation activities and the investments in simulation should be absolutely aligned to the practice of the institution and education at the institution. I think it's also partly about how we use the um, the, the simulation resource. Um, so, Victoria, I'm going to scare you in a second now. Imagine the world in 2030 or 2040, and unfortunately, neither of us have retired yet. We're still working, and it's time for your appraisal. And but now we're going to go into a simulation lab to do your appraisal and you've got somebody with uh, COPD and I say so and I ask you questions about it about how to manage the patients and you've got it all right and you say bronchodilators oxygen steroids antibiotics nothing has changed uh, by in terms of treatment by by, by by 2030 um but stop for a second um is that a good use of the simulation resource? I've asked you some really basic questions, which I could have asked you over a podcast or with a pencil and paper about doses and names of drugs. You know, we need to be, it's an inefficient way of using uh, quite an expensive simulation resource um, to use it just to test knowledge, you know, should be. Yes thinking about using it to to test and educate practical procedural skills, team working skills, communication skills, performance behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. It's, uh, it also comes down to what are you doing it for? Because um, as you indicate, procedural skills practice can now largely be done without facilitators with the newer versions of virtual reality and other box trainers, so facilitators may be a relative lesser cost, whereas, as you say, team-based training is always going to be expensive because of the people who need to be there, and for that reason, a lot of us have moved to in situ and translational simulation, uh, taking the sim centre out of it completely, uh, making decisions about whether to work with simulated patient actors or mannequins, I think, is another good choice we do about half half with our emergency medicine trainees uh, and as you say if you're talking about individual behavioral skill assessment in terms of cost oskis just cannot match up versus 
well-done, ideal workplace-based assessment, but we know that uh, that is really ideal or even well done um, because it has its own problems. So, yeah, I think simulation is a good example. Uh, I would like to think that the world is moving on toward, away from fidelity towards that functional task alignment that you're talking about, and that's not my term but others. So in view of sort of thinking about some of these contexts, probably the one other one that I am interested in is faculty development. And I don't know if you've sort of turned your thoughts to that one as much, but you know, we like to think that training clinical teachers and clinical supervisors is a useful thing to do as well, but it's um, hard to know, again, how to demonstrate the value of that and then to think about what's reasonable in terms of time and effort to put into it. Had you had any thoughts on that one? Yeah, sure. Like, I think that in terms of the value of it, there's there's massive value to it but measuring that value and assigning a value to it um is is really challenging in terms of the cost of of it i think that um at this the so-called credentialing approach might be worth worth worthwhile um so, so whenever um somebody approaches me and say I've got an interest in medical education and I maybe even want to make it a substantial part of my career to be a supervisor or, 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 or whatever how should I go about this then I say to them always well start off by going on a course and a, a, a simple one first of all and uh, and get some qualification uh, or, or, or certificate from that course then you might want to think about doing a university accredited or validated uh, proper certificate in medical education and then that might grow into a diploma or a master's or or whatever but i think the idea of having kind of step on and step off levels so that you can get a certificate and then take some time off and then maybe go back and get a diploma is likely to be worthwhile, is likely to be effective, is likely to be a means of um, of um, controlling the amount of time and the amount of cost and the amount of investment that you might put put into something. And, and ultimately, that what we'll get in the end as institutions is lots and lots of different healthcare professionals who can become faculty with different levels of qualifications and who, who can perform different tasks um, within the within the institution. I, I think that might be one good way of looking at it. Yes. Uh, outputs that are able to be deployed across contexts, uh, even if they're people, are uh, definitely more of an investment than people who've only got one particular endpoint. Uh, all right, so we will get to thinking about some next steps in the future, but I wanted to just sort of recap a little bit because we've talked conceptually and then we've thought about online learning, about simulation, a bit about faculty development. But really when you start to think about cost and value, you can see that it applies to so many things in health professions education. It applies to selection processes into health professions education. A lot of money is spent on that. It obviously applies to assessment. We spend so much money trying to 
produce the ideal bell curve where maybe we just need to know the true negatives. Uh, we can think it applies to bedside teaching and learning and thinking about what the opportunity costs are for clinicians teaching versus delivering work. Uh, are there any other particular contexts or any of those that you wanted to um, provide any sort of further thoughts on? I think you're right. I think it does apply. When you think about it, it's, you start to realize it applies to absolutely everything. And I think it's useful to think about it in different ways. You can think about it in a kind of a microeconomic view of the world. And you might say, okay, well, he, here's an e-learning package, or we're going to invest in this new simulation resource and we're going to work out the cost of it and we're going to work out the out learning outcomes associated with it etc etc um and that's that's one way of of looking at it but the the other way of looking at it is kind of a macro approach where you say okay the uk spends four or five billion annually on healthcare professional education of doctors nurses allied healthcare professionals at undergraduate, postgraduate, CPD levels. How can we get better value from our spend? Or you can think about it from the perspective of the, the so-called brain drain, where a country might invest in the education of doctors and other healthcare professionals, but a certain percentage of them leave um, every year, leave the country every year, sometimes never to return, and sometimes relatively soon after they've qualified, in which case at a macro level, you can see that countries have made a, a big investment in the education of healthcare professionals and have got very little return. There's no easy way to solve th this problem, the problem of the brain drain. Lots of people have thought about it for, 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 for many years, but, but I think sometimes looking at it from the cost perspective can really put it into stark perspective. All right, well, let's start to wrap it round to what we should do with this, Kieran, because I certainly know as an everyday educator at some level I'm thinking, oh, this is all too big and all too hard for me. But I think you've pointed the way to thinking about it at different levels. Uh, it sounds like we need to have a little bit of a cultural shift. Maybe we need a little bit of skills acquisition or at least collaboration with some people who know how to actually do some of the maths here. Uh, and can you give us a little sense of what do you think we should be doing as everyday educators uh, and where to from here for the broader strategy? So I think you're right that it because it is so big and because it does seem to involve everything potentially, you, that there is a temptation to kind of think, gosh, this is too, too big to take on. I'll leave it till next year or, 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 or whatever. Um, so the strategy that I've taken is really to, to pick off different components of it and to work on those like the cost and value of clinical decision support or, or e-learning or, or whatever. I think that there are opportunities for partnership so I've been really delighted to work with colleagues at Monash who have started to develop some real expertise in this area. Um, Steve Maloney and, and Jonathan Fu, um, amongst others, who, who have started to produce um, papers um, 
including uh, Amy, Amy guides, um, which which are which are really helpful. Um, I I think there's an opportunity for other institutions to become centres of excellence. So we can think of other institutions like Maastricht and assessment, where they've built up. Um, uh, expertise in assessment over over many many years. There's a big opportunity for other institutions um, to develop expertise in in this particular area. Like ten years on since I first um, became interested in in 2010 at the time of the the, the great recession, uh, we've made progress, but slow progress uh, and now it looks like we're into another great recession uh, uh, possibly um, but it's still an enormous opportunity um, that, that there's still so many unexplored areas for new uh, budding researchers who, who want to look at this so I would really strongly in, in, encourage them and and do get in touch if they want to discuss ideas or or, or, or join the society also we very much welcome that. Yes and I think you're spot on we are going to have some uh, difficult times ahead financially, so it'll be a good time to be very well aware of your cost and your value as educators and to be able to articulate that, uh, whether that's in dollar terms and or other intangible values. Well, it seems as though we've had a very interesting conversation, Kieran. We've talked about concepts, talked about applications and thought a little bit about ways forward. I do want to say thank you for your time today and for those listening from uh, the Harvard Macy community. Alan Leichner and I will be doing a session on return on investment in the May segment of the Educators course and we'll be drawing heavily on this conversation with Kieran and no doubt some of the other work that he's referred to during the podcast. But thank you very much, Kieran, for your time. So thanks for listening to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. If you liked what you heard, why not subscribe on iTunes? And while you're there, please give us a rating. It helps other educators and leaders in the health profession find us. For more, go to harvardmacy.org, our website, where there'll be plenty to find, including the blog, as well as links to Harvard Macy on Twitter, at Harvard Macy, and also our Facebook site. I'm Victoria Brazel, signing off for the Harvard Macy Institute podcast.